everyone. It's lovely to see you today. Um, on MHTV today, we're going to be talking about so many things. It's actually quite hard to give it a title, but we're going to be talking a lot about um, hypermania, a lot about psychosis, and a lot about that experience and the experience of writing, which is so important, I think, to lots of people who are either studying um, nursing or other health um, professional degrees, but also people who just want to understand a bit more about the human experience that we all share and that some people have, have different experiences and thinking about how we can understand, support and care about each other a bit better. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, a lot in a short time. So we want to hear from you. So before we introduce you to our fantastic guest, who we're very lucky to have, um, let me hand you over to Dave so that he can tell you how you can join him tonight. Because as ever, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you think. Dave? Hi, yeah. Thanks, Nikki. And hi, everyone. And Nikki, I've got to say, uh, we've had the most number of comments so far before the episode started, just people waving and saying hello. So that's obviously lovely. So Amy, obviously, is a, a big draw. Uh, so yeah, if you want to get involved tonight, there's a few different ways. Uh, one of the uh, one of them is on uh, Twitter. All you have to do is include the hashtag MHTV. Uh, if you include that hashtag, we'll be able to see the comments and questions and we'll try and bring those into the chat tonight. And then the other important way is on the Facebook live chat. Again, if you've got any comments, if you've got any questions, please just type them in. Uh, and obviously, we'll bring in anything that, that we can uh, with tonight's conversation. But obviously, Nikki, straight back over to you. Yeah, and let's get straight into talking to our guest. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hello. Um, I'm Amy Pollard. Uh, I am uh, the Director of Mental Health Collective, uh, which is a not-for-profit specialising in the social and collective dimensions of mental health. Um, and I'm also the Writer-in-Residence at the Centre for Mental Health, um, where I'm doing a, a series of uh, long-read pieces across the next um, 12 months, uh, all about like different aspects of, 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 of mental health. I'm trying to write it kind of like The Sopranos, uh, where each one has its own little arc, but then there's a mega arc stretching across the whole thing. Um, and I draw on my experience as a, a social anthropologist. Um, I did my PhD all about like knowledge and power and institutions and all that kind of jazz. And um, and also my experience of, of being unwell myself. So I was sectioned in 2016 and I have a bipolar diagnosis. So I've like seen all the fun of the fair in terms of um, services and um, yeah, the, some of the different challenges that, that come with come with that that kind of experience in life, really. Yeah. So that's that's kind of me. But yeah, really pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. No, no we, saw, we saw your writing and loved it. And I think it's a real gift to be able to take that kind of from a personal perspective and the big ideas and actually put them together in a place that really helps people and it is really interesting and very readable so I guess maybe can we start by thinking about you know your journey into writing how you how you went down that road because simply you might become an artist or other things what was it about writing? Yeah. well everyone's an artist aren't they in a way and I feel I felt um I felt like quite drawn to writing a lot of the time. And I think I think it's a really helpful thing, especially like if you're a little bit whizzy, which is my way of talking about hypermania, like it's a really good thing if other people won't can't like operate at your speed and you're a bit bit whizzy woo, then if you can kind of crystallize their ideas in writing, it's almost like you can build a relationship with yourself and mm. and you know lay the ideas down so that you can layer them up. Um, and I've been taking notes on my experiences of, of whizziness and depression and like the whole bipolar thing for since 20, 
2009 I started I think yeah and so I've got and I, I because I'm an anthropologist I, I take field notes so I take mm. it in that spirit of like okay let's do participant observation while I'm participating and observing and it's almost like a it's almost like a bit like a mindfulness thing in a way like you kind of externalize the thoughts and try and capture the thoughts as you go so I had all these notes um, and I've been using the writing like as a as a kind of uh, leveling technique, as it were, like when I was a bit wobbly. Um, and then after having layered them up in various ways, like I, I felt really drawn to kind of synthesize them. And last year I um, I started writing a book and I did write a book um, which crystallized my experience in very in in a, in a certain narrative. Mm. Um, but then and I was quite pleased with it. Yeah. But then when I'd finished it, I decided that I didn't want anyone else to read it, which mm. you might argue is a bit of a strategic error, really, when, <laughs> when book writing. <laughs> but I'd um I'd been I'd been tweeting about it on my private on my private Twitter. And so a small number of people did know about it, one of whom was um Sarah Hughes at the at Center for Mental Health. And so um she then invited me to become their writer in residence. Um and and I kind of saw that as kind of like a second chance really of like try to write again but this time like write with the genuine intention that other people are going to read it <laughs> and um, I find that image of like having a roof over your head like being a resident somewhere it, it provides that shelter for me to be writing like much edgier much bolder much bigger material than than I than I've kind of worked with before so <laughs> I've kind of grabbed the grabbed the opportunity with both hands to 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 really like put some audacity on the table and 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 like write through some quite big ideas that I've been percolating for a really long time and I've like mm. trying to been summon up the courage to to put out there basically. Yes, it sounds like writing does a lot of different things for you at once. Mm. Yeah, and I'm impressed as well by the the kind of kind of concepts and the ideas you tackle. One of the ones I noticed in the first piece was looking at isolation, being that kind of loneliness. I wonder if you could. Maybe talk to us a little bit more about about what your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I mean, if there's anything that people with mental health difficulties have in common, I would say it's got to be loneliness, right? Like that's something that no matter what the diversity of people's experiences, it's something that people come back to time and again. You know, that feeling of I'm, I'm falling apart, I'm feeling alone. And, um, you know, that's certainly something that I've, I've, I've gone through a lot and that, you know, comes up for me too. And... Um, I was trying to reflect on like what's that all about like what are the roots of that really and um i started thinking about the enlightenment which um you know is a is a historical period um that happened in the 17th and 18th centuries um a kind of intellectual movement starting coming out of europe which put um reason at the heart of society and basically said like for human beings to progress and for society to kind of work in a sort of proper civilized functional modern way um what we need to do is 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 be reasonable and to use our powers of reason and logic and rationality to 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 argue with one another and gradually iterate better and better all the time um and the idea behind that was it was supposed to uh, prevent abuses of power that had been happening previously in the 15th and 16th centuries particularly of the church and um, Anyway, I know it seems a bit random to, to be like stepping back 300 years in that way to say like, let's look at that context. But I think it's really important in terms of the roots of loneliness and mental health. Yeah. Because when we say mad, 
we could use that terminology both to talk about mental illness, but also having lost reason. So like we'd say, talk about an idea as being crazy if you can't trace like what that idea is, is about, or, like what the logic of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think that there's, you know, that's not just like a weird linguistic quirk. Like there is something deeply aligned about mental ill health and lack and, and non-reason of different kinds. And I think that because the Enlightenment 200 years ago placed reason as like the defining characteristic of of mankind and said like the thing that makes human beings different from animals is our capacity Mm. to reason Mm. and so if you've gone down that road as a society then it follows that if you have if you're non-reasonable then you're you're alien like you're not human anymore and I think it's that cultural that set of cultural values which said human beings and being part of society means Mm. being reasonable. It means you can be dealt with. Mm. That means that if you're non-reasonable, then people don't know how to deal with you. And that's why you become alien and it's why you you feel alone, essentially. Mm. Um, And so I think that's, I found that really liberating, like as Mm. a person who's had mental ill health themselves, because frankly, like it's not about you in the same way. If you frame it in that cultural context, it's about people in mainstream culture trying to kind of reinforce their belonging within um, the those, those norms and values of reason. And like you become the scapegoat, which other people are using to sort of shore up that cultural milieu. But mm. it's not really about if you're being excluded and you're feeling lonely, maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's about mm. other people and their insecurities and their need to kind of build a wall around a particular set of values. Mm. So yeah, so that was my that was what I was thinking about with that. I'm not. I can see. I absolutely see how you went down that road because it does make sense, does it? And and some of the things that bounce out of it, well, are these these ideas that it's not just having two things; it's having them in opposition, mm. so blending. There's no equal valuing because we know like creativity, things that don't make sense, but make sense to your heart. They don't make, mm. sense, to make sense to your heart. They're really important to being a human being. But when you divide them up and you have like masculine, feminine, you have reason, non-reason, and you have this separation, all of a sudden you get a lot of values that are privileged over the other set and it splits people in half. Definitely, definitely. I think that's so right. And it's, it's, it's um, you know... I'm not anti-reason at all. It's about making sure that your head and your heart and your soul and your guts, you know, that they all have a place. And, mm. and, um, and as you say, like having people there holistically. And I think you can even see it actually in the way that we frame mental health as mental health. And, you, you know, you're literally cutting people down to their, to their brains the brain. and saying like, this is, this is your, mm. your sort of mm. definition, which I think really does, um, convey a lot about where people's mm. uh, orientation is towards mm. towards this arena and the privileging of mm. the me- the mental thought intellectual process over and above the other mm. ways that we could mm. um, configure ourselves. Absolutely, in caregiving. If you think about how therapists are are considered when they operate with with the higher thought and people who take people to the toilet are treated. When human beings need both of those services, and you're you're a terrible caregiver if you can't tell someone's having a heart attack, you're going to get a pretty bad outcome. So this idea, yeah. you know, in, in in kind of certain traditional um, types of of healing and care, 
Um, and even up until sort of the 18th century, we had a much more holistic view. And now mm. and holistic care and we talk about creativity as part of well-being, it feels quite new again because of the kind of real biomedical, physical pressures that have been on services for such a long time. And I think if you don't realise where that stuff comes from, mm. go along with it without thinking. You just get taught the thing that you were taught or believe the thing that society surrounds you with. And yeah. never no, I think that's right. And I think there's so much more honour in those um, caring, holistic, bigger, uh, whole person things that people can bring to the table. Um, the, the, as you say, like it, they are incredibly devalued. And um, and there's this weird um, pedestal of, of like intellectual brainiac stuff, which um, mm. which just, I don't know, I think it, I think it tastes um, quite sour in the mouth sometimes, and um, and yeah, it just comes that comes across as a sort of snobbery and people looking down on on, on mm. one another um, mm. and missing, like yeah, yeah. The, the much more powerful aspects of of mm. life and relationships. And you know, I mean, if you just look over the last hundred years, if you have an intellectual concept without compassion, never ends well. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. It's true. It's true. How does this feed into sort of stigma then? Because you've talked about the idea of in-groups and out-groups and, and, and reason and unreason. So where, where does stigma come into this, do you think? Well, I mean, stigma is is obviously um, a way of, 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 of marking people, isn't it? And holding, holding people differently. So um, stigma is about defining an in-group and an out-group. And... Um, and what and the, one of the things I think is really interesting about is about stigma is, is we always talk about it in terms of what characteristics are different about the person who's who's out, the person who's stigmatized. And weirdly, that's kind of more stigmatizing. Like the the, the opposite maneuver that you could that you could you, that you could use is to look at like what is it about ourselves that we're looking to cast out and like project onto the other person so mm. you know so what's the bit that we're afraid of in mm. us that we're then using externalizing basically putting on a putting on a scapegoat putting on the person who's stigmatized and then if you if they like basically carry it away then it purifies the in-group and the in-group can feel really safe so mm. so yeah so I definitely mm. think that there's um a bit of kind of reflective self-scrutiny um, mm. and maybe a bit of pride actually for people who you know for those of us who do get stigmatized in various ways like there is a position you can hold that in which um which allows that to be information about society rather than only something that's like about you mm. is, is it such a um I mean, everyone will have had some experience of being stigmatized in some way, won't they? And I think mm. it's that you can draw on to try and understand the experience of other people as well. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? That even the experience of loneliness, even saying that you're lonely is really stigmatizing. People, yeah. are, um, they, they absolutely point at the individual. If someone says, oh, I feel lonely, then what is it about you that's wrong? Instead of thinking, actually, why doesn't society connect us better as a mm. as it's really, I think you put the idea that you look back at the people who are in the big group and figure out what they're doing is much more valuable than trying to figure out what these lone lone wolves have done to get cast out. It's not about them in a weird kind of way. You're absolutely right. It's about what society needs to believe about itself. 
and, and yeah and how people challenge that I mean I suppose it was it was um you know back in back in uh Neolithic times it was it was like the ultimate punishment wasn't it to to um force someone into exile like into uh, away from the tribe and out of you know in ancient Rome like going out of the city was was mm. basically equivalent to, to certain death wasn't it and human beings are such such mm. socially dependent animals um mm. but but it does obviously therefore mean that um for someone who's very unwell like the absolute worst thing you can then do is to mm. is to, to 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 help them to make them feel exiled and to mm be putting them in that dynamic and that's why I think that um it's such a precious gift um mm. if people who are caring for those who are very unwell can find other ways of relating and other be more imaginative more creative mm. bigger wholer you know just just mm. bring bring more humanity to the table um mm. so so that you're you know so that you're diffusing some of some of that because it's 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 totally um transcendable I think that that you can connect with people who who aren't like you know maybe you can't make sense of what they're going through but that doesn't need to matter it really doesn't it's interesting there's loads of different circumstances where we connect to people who who don't have reason as their primary communication so if you are talking to somebody who has had too much to drink, if you are talking to um, an older person with dementia, if you are talking to a pre-verbal baby or something like that, you communicate without even thinking. Mm. You use emotion, you use experience. But there's something, I think, about the experience of loss of control for adults, which is very, very frightening for a lot mm. of people. And instead mm. of reaching out, I think fear makes us shrink away sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it's so frightening? I think people want an illusion of control, don't they? They they want the illusion that you can you can be in charge of your own destiny all the time, and sometimes you can't. Mm, mm. Well, the fear of of standing out or being different is really um, extreme. Yeah, they say we've got such a surveillance culture without meaning to everything. Mm on Facebook right now but <laughs> everything you can say is is held up as a standard as a measurement isn't it mm. I think too different it's too yeah scary. yeah I think that's right about um that wanting the illusion of being in control mm. um I've been um reflecting on psychosis a lot recently and um thinking about it uh, like to what extent can you use um, techniques from from dream analysis and, mm. and bring those to um, to making sense of psychosis? Yeah. Um, because I think you know, in my experience, like often psychosis comes up when you haven't slept for a really long time, right? So, to my mind, like it kind of makes sense if you really don't if you don't sleep and you don't sleep and you don't sleep, like eventually you're you're going to be dreaming and like all like the stuff that comes through when you're dreaming, like will kind of come through <laughs> come through anyway and get in a muddle with like your mm. conscious and mm. and your unconscious life. Um, and like we're not in control when we're dreaming, right? Like that that sort of comes from a part of you that that you're not like in control of. Um, yeah. And in the same by the same token, like what comes up in psychosis isn't really something that you're. That you're in control of um but it's almost like that process of, of sort of ego dissolution isn't it like ego with a capital e of of sort of not having part of yourself emerge 
which mm. isn't in that conscious control, but is definitely like part of your inner world, like part of your inner mm. life. And that's so um that's another thing that I think is really fascinating to me that um if you have everything bounded within the thresholds of like this is a dream, this is awake, then it's all good. Mm. But if you lose that threshold and that boundary and then the the mm. like subconscious and the conscious are sort of intermingling together and it gets in a mess and that's like yeah. much harder to it's much harder to ride those waves and people are much less accustomed to yeah. to to working with that I think yeah. and I think it, it as well people don't think about you know homeostasis is such a fragile tiny boundary if you mm. get hot or too cold you'll see or hear things that other people don't hear if you spend a long time in isolation you'll probably see or think that other people don't hear mm. if you are without food or water that you will have these experiences. And some people actually go to create them, you know, and I think one of the things that's really interesting with sort of the psychedelic therapists that are coming back again, very interestingly, I wouldn't want to be doing the research ethics on those, but um, <laughs> I had a, had a talk on that from, um, it was Harry, um, Harry Summers, I think, and it's a really interesting one because he was talking a lot about exactly what you say about ego dissolution. So people have had experiences of real trauma or who have um, life-limiting illnesses um, will often put themselves forward for this type of work. And actually, when you realise you're not the centre of the world, it's actually quite freeing in a way. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because so often um, you, you hear stories of children who experienced trauma, experienced abuse uh, when they were small, like saying that they felt responsible for it, responsible for what happened. And as a child, that was self-protective because it was better to assume some degree of control rather than admit to the terrifying reality that they were that vulnerable and that much in the hands of the adults uh, who were failing to look after them. And so it would make sense that an ego dissolution therapy that that like took away that sense of being mm. ha having to be in control would sort of work with the grain of of mm. that sort of underlying pain, I would say. Mm. Um, but but yeah, I think that that's one of the things that people find hardest is 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 losing control. And maybe ultimately, again, that that's to do with what human beings are afraid of, like as in death, it's <laughs> like, you know, those big, those really big questions, and like some of the reasons yeah. that people with severe mental health difficulties get stigmatized is is because like they're a they're a reminder of like some cold hard truths about mortality that that everyone has to face up to in the end. Yeah. Well, they're a reminder of, of shifting vulnerability, aren't they? When you go yeah. on safeguarding courses, you have to teach safeguarding. One of the questions that are asked right then, who is vulnerable? And the fact is we all are in different circumstances at different times, different places, but surrounded by different people. We can all be the victim. And it's yeah. a frightening thought for some people, particularly if they've spent their whole life thinking, if I don't go out at night or if I don't do this, or if I don't, then I'll be safe. When the fact yeah. is what makes you at risk is being around someone who's predatory and aggressive is not. <laughs> and it's such a yeah, hard thing definitely. to get our heads around sometimes. It is. And it's interesting, I think, how, how you know, we can label ourselves in different ways, can't we? Mm -hmm. um, you know, both in, in terms of our sort of personal characteristics or our social role or whatever it might be. But you can you can become sort of blasé or a bit tick boxy about about who's vulnerable and who's not and who has the power and who doesn't i think it's always worth sort of checking in with the um the the actual reality of that and and how that might change according to circumstances and, and yeah like which bits of which bits of that are, are within your gift to command mm. and which which are not you know 
Mm. Definitely like not an area to be too um, lackadaisical about. <laughs> yeah, I could say some very good conversations about power. And also <laughs> at some point we'll come on to your experience of, of wittiness and what that means for you. But mm. some questions have come in. I just wondered if Dave wanted to just come in a little bit because I feel like <laughs> again. It's okay. You know, I never mind, Nikki. I'm always kind of sort of head down on social media, but also trying to, to follow the conversation. Uh, so we've had uh, one question come in from Adrian, uh, and he said, uh, really interesting topic, the hierarchy of medicine and terminology is fascinating. I think that whilst we are hardwired to care, unfortunately, the suspicion on those difference is equally as strong. My fear is that people still personalise empathy to make us feel better. What do you think is the most important thing to allow us to care, support and guide with humanity, either spiritually or academically? <laughs> One for you there, Amy. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's a bit it's a bit cliche, but I definitely think that... Um, you know, being able to care for yourself and check in with your own emotional um, state is is an absolute precondition for being able to empathise and like extend yourself across the across the barrier with with somebody else. Um, and I think that uh, the more accepting we're able to be of whatever feelings are coming up, the better the more human we are like stepping into the room and stepping into the interaction um and I think you know fundamentally for me it's about having greater imagination greater creativity not getting stuck if we feel like we don't understand um where someone else is coming from like don't let don't let lack of understanding be the end of the road when it comes to empathy like go as far as you can with your understanding and then go further to, to reach out to people in whatever way um, that they can. And um, there's always something that you can reinforce when you're engaging with someone. Like it might be something just as simple as their breathing or like, you know, a gentle movement that they're doing. But there's always something that you can mirror back that's positive and that's not going to take someone in the wrong direction. There's always some like look for the look for the humanity, like take a yes and approach. Find one thing that you can say yes to in what they're offering you in that interaction. Reinforce that and then mirror it back in a in a slightly magnified way and so that you're able to create some kind of interchange. Mm. Is it possible that you could talk a little bit about what you mean by wizziness? Yeah, so um, wizziness is is my word for hypermania. So, like the you know the the psychiatric term is 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 hypermania, like as part of a bipolar experience. Personally, I think wizziness is is more um, evocative of like what this is actually like. Like there's a speed to it, basically. You're whizzing <laughs> and you've got more ideas um, and more observations and just you're just operating at a higher speed than than uh, people do normally, like in conversation or in, in social life. Um, and I think to me, it's a bit like... You know how when you're watching a, a camp, like watching a film, and usually like you just watch the diff different images and everything just looks like in fluid motion. Like when you're whizzy, the when you get really whizzy, it, it's like your vision becomes so fast that you can kind of see the separate frames, like see the separate images. And so it kind of, instead of 
social life looking kind of smooth and fluid and you being able to kind of read it easily it becomes everything becomes a bit too obvious <laughs> and so mm. you kind of see the social cues that people are giving to asking you to like advance or retreat like you know give giving a bid for attention or giving a kind of go away mm. please signal um but because um it's all you're seeing everything too quickly those mm. become like really blindingly screamingly obvious and all the kind of subconscious communication that usually makes social interaction go smoothly um it's not subconscious anymore it's too like in your face and that makes interactions feel kind of weird and uncanny and that that's just gets very confusing so um so, yeah, is it like that, too much definition then is that what it's like yeah, I think it's too much data, basically. I think, and I think when when people get too much data, too much multi-sensory data from the world, it just it becomes very difficult to interpret. Mm. Um, and the usual ways that we would interpret um the kind of bids for attention, like the and the 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 kind of go away signals, like the advance and retreat signals that yeah. that make up social interaction. Yeah. Um when there's too much of that to make sense of, I think people, that's where these ideas about like people can read my mind or I'm reading someone else's mind or I'm controlling this or someone's spying on me, like those kinds of like paranoid delusion type stuff. I think that that's what, that's what comes up when wizziness and this like magnified acceleration of perception um, like gets misinterpreted basically. I think it's, I think those misinterpretations do have um like they're they're not they're not accurate, but I can see where they're coming from. I can see I can see that there's a there's a reasonable, it's a reasonable guess at making sense of some very challenging data, is what I reckon. Mm, especially when it's coming at you really fast. How does it make yeah, sense? exactly. And it's really lonely as well because yeah. if, you, if you've got all this like material getting thrown at you and it's all coming to you, it's all too it's all too much and too fast. Um, and you're struggling to interpret that data, that probably you're behaving in a in a way that's making other people may well like feel slightly anxious being around you. Mm. And so and and that means that if they're feeling slightly anxious and that makes you feel alone then um, this anxiety vortex can start where <laughs> your, your kind of whizziness makes mm. someone else anxious because mm. they're anxious, you feel more lonely. And when you feel lonely, you're more, you're more anxious about kind of checking what the hell's going on. Mm, and then that kind cool. of, it just goes, blah, 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 yeah. Blah, 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 yeah, bigger and bigger. And that you mm. can't um, check with them like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit confused about... Mm. uh you know the the graphics design on match today like feels like it's giving me a like secret message is that is that correct or not like you can't say that without making people feel really feel really like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah exactly um so so you end up kind of sitting uh, yeah either freaking people out or kind of sitting alone in that in that headspace um and so so yeah from a sort of carer's perspective and professional's perspective what I think you really need to do is decelerate that anxiety vortex, like be as calm, be as like accepting, just be like, yeah, whiz, you can whiz, it's fine. It's not, I'm fine, you're fine, everyone's fine. Because I think tacitly, the whizzy person is usually asking either the carer or the professional 
Like, am I out of control? And if the carer or the professional responds in a way that conveys like, oh, I don't know, maybe you are, <laughs> then, <laughs> then that makes everybody panic and makes yeah, things a lot yeah. worse. But if the carer or the professional can respond in a way that says, yeah, maybe you are, <laughs> you know, and it's like, and it's like, yeah, we are losing control here and we know how to lose control and we can swim in this water, we can surf on this water and that's mm. all right. Like, I think if you can convey that confidence and convey mm. that people are accompanied in this process and that, mm. you know, you're not, you're not having to deal with it all alone. Mm. And we've done, we've, we've, we've sailed these seas many times. We know these roads, it's fine. Mm. Then I think that's the way to decelerate the anxiety mm. vortex and, and to, mm. and to like help people feel more grounded. Mm. So it really reminds me of like the tidal model from back in the day as well. The use of understanding about water and connection and 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 pace and stillness that stuff you know and then the imagery was something when I was a baby nurse I found it just so helpful so I'd come from like a history and English background and it just Mm. made sense to me like of course of course people want to feel safe of course why why wouldn't they want that that's that's what everybody wants yeah I can hear we've had some more questions come in so let's go back to Dave it's going to be thick and fast. We don't want to run out before the end. This always happens. It's quite <laughs> dark. And then as soon as we start thinking about what it's been, we've been on half an hour, it gets busy. Yes. Uh, now, now, Rory's done a one-sentence question, which I love, uh, as in, you know, it's short. I love short questions. Should antipsychotic <laughs> medication be an over-the-counter drug non-prescribed? Ooh. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm in no position to um, to make a call on on something like that. My instinct is like probably not. That doesn't sound like a very good idea. <laughs> just on the, just on the face of it, they're quite strong, powerful things, aren't they? But I mean, uh, if you uh, what I my experience of of, of um, psychiatric medication in general is that um, you know some of it's pretty horrible and you have really horrible side effects with it but you can kind of learn it like um you know I know how how certain drugs feel in my body now in the same way as I know how a glass of wine will feel um and you know I have a relationship with my psychiatrist which which means that I can like cut up my pills into like the smallest like tiniest fragments tiniest tiniest fragments mm. and therefore like um, take the take a tiny sliver at like the absolute earliest little sign, and like you know, I've got a lot of attunement to to different symptoms, and so you know, I can take a tiny weeny bit, and then I don't get any side effects to speak of. You know, you can just sort of ride it, and I think that you know, basically, if you can do your best to build trust with um, the professionals who mm. you hold the keys to the medicine cabinet, mm. um, and if they can trust you. Um, and and you can get to a point where yeah you're taking exactly what you want to take and you know exactly what the, the like the, the benefits the costs and benefits are going to be, um, you know. But I think I think sort of familiarity with your own symptoms and and then learning of the medication um, can get can definitely like get you a long way. Is my mm-hmm. my experience. But yeah, let's not do, let's not like just have a free for all. <laughs> is what that would be. My, I think I don't think they're just going to just change it because you said Amy. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. It's not on you. Yeah. What power you have, Amy. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So so I've got to say that I think a few other people on the Facebook chat agree 
with your comments, Amy. So that you know, I, I think I think you're on the the, the side of of the majority there. Okay. Uh, now, <laughs> Florence has asked a question about how do we create awareness on stigmatization in some cultural communities. Um. I mean, I think you have to be a bit more specific about some cultural communities, don't you? I mean, obviously, different communities are different and the approach that you would take in, in each mm. particular like cultural background would be like distinctive. Mm. I mean, obviously, like working from first principles, the first thing to do is, is to like have some deep, real understanding about what the context is and what the background you know what what's the background of the concerns like where does this sit you know within um uh, within people's beliefs and norms and values and prior ex prior experiences and all of that stuff um and you know <laughs> you'd want to be having a very sort of deep co-productive um you know led by the right people yeah. as, from those communities as much as possible etc and having like a you know whatever can be done to build trust and dialogue and and all the rest of it I mean I think the reality is that cultural change is always is is slow and painstaking and it's a lot easier to destroy trust than it is to build it um so you know I think you don't you don't sort of wave magic wands around and and have like one-off interventions you have to um build trust over over a long period and yeah. um and first thing to, to, to really stop doing all the awful things that have been done. Um, mm. And obviously, you know, the um, horrors that have been uh, wrought on uh, the Black and Afro-Caribbean um, communities is, is sort of is the number one, number one thing, like stop doing yeah. all those, um, mm. you know, Black people being four times more likely to be sectioned than white communities. Mm. The levels of drugs yeah. being so much, so much more um, severely medicated, much more likely to have enforced constraint, all that stuff. Yeah. Stop doing all that, and then, and then we can start the the, the trust building part. Mm. Yeah, and and I suppose it goes back to that first principles of healthcare, isn't it? You know, the first thing should be do no harm, and yeah. I think as you've described there, actually, mm. there's plenty of experiences and examples where we do do harm, mm. and you know, the first principle mm. should be we'll stop doing that. Yeah, I think I it's think not weird to thing, be frightened of something that's frightening, is it? No. <laughs> I, I, the other thing, I suppose, is is how that fits in with your series of, of blogs that you're doing for Centre for Mental Health, and and that kind of a, a, attempt that you're making to get that information out there in an un understandable way. So, I suppose that's one of the planks as well, isn't it? About how do we educate people? Well, it's having easily accessible. Uh, helpful information like the stuff that you're producing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm sort of doing my best with it. Uh, it is quite, my work's quite um, it's quite ambitious in some ways, and it you know it's it's not the sort of uh, snackable content that you can just you know enjoy your cat gifts during your during your lunch hour. Like it does ask a little bit of attention, like from the readers. Um, but you know, there's audio versions of, of all of my pieces and, and print-friendly versions as well. Um, and I've, I've I've put in as 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 much um, uh, like I've lightened it as much as you can possibly do when you're talking to, when you're talking about severe mental illness. Um, but but yeah, I do I do think that um, I do think that there's a lot of um, interesting and 
honourable and really like exciting material that comes out of the uh, experience of severe mental illness, which mm. is is relevant and pertinent and kind of weirdly at the cutting edge of society more broadly, which it's a real privilege to be able to come through um, from the margins and like offer offer that different perspective. So I don't know, I'm kind of, um, I'm excited by like the opportunity to uh, to to try and bridge to try and bridge those gaps, you know, and to mm. try and to kind of take see where you can go by by taking these very difficult experiences and seeing what what they can offer to like mainstream society as well as improving mm. mental health practice. Mm. It seems like we've run out of time a little bit now. But it's gone so fast. I really <laughs> yeah. Um, we've certainly covered some ground, which I'm. We made we made a list at the start of things we want to talk about, and we've pretty much covered it. So that's 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 pretty good. And I know that there's some um, comments on uh, Facebook and probably on Twitter as well that we haven't got round to yet. So if you have contributed tonight, and we haven't got round to you. Thank you. It is really appreciated, and we will go and have a look and and get back to people um, as soon as we can do that. But I guess maybe we think about any kind of like last thoughts you want to leave people with, any messages, or maybe even tell people what's coming up if it's not too much of a spoiler, Amy. Oh, um, yeah. So uh, my next piece, which is coming out uh, in the new year, is going to be all about the attitudes um, that we need for navigation. So if if it's true that the mystic swims in the same waters that's that the psychotic drowns in, then what does it take to swim? Like, what are the attitudes that you need in order to swim in those very challenging, like, psychic weird waters? So, yeah, so that's that's what's coming up next. I'm actually quite looking forward to that already. I think, oh, that's not good. <laughs> David, is there anything you wanted to add to that? You can shake your head if there isn't. Oh, cool. Right, in that case, it's just sent me through a little link to remind everyone that next week, um, if, if it's not enough that we 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 swam in some serious waters today, we're doing social justice next week in 40 minutes. Yay. <laughs> get into the position, guys. Get ready, ready. We've got Lucy Colwell and Warren Stewart with us talking about social justice and mental health. So again, just thank you so much to our fantastic guest. If you have not been reading her writing, get yourself sorted out. It's there for you. Um, and lovely, lovely evening to everybody. It's been to have you on board. Take care and have a good night. Night, night guys. Bye. See you next week. <laughs> Bye.